And we're live. Welcome in, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us today. I am honored and privileged to have Ray and Zach Shevska on my channel. These uh, gentlemen are a great resource for the auto market, auto dealerships, the state of the auto industry, how to get your best bang for your buck. Uh, it's just just really great uh, channel um, and, and something I've been following very closely for the last uh, few months and quarters. And so, Ray and Zach, thank you both so much for joining me today. How are you guys doing today? Well, well, thank you for having us. And I don't think we can live up to your billing, but the, we'll do our best. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure yeah, you Thanks will. for having us. We're thrilled to be here. Of course, man. Um, we have a, just a real quick, uh, Ray and Zach are going to be new to my audience. So producer wife, if you don't mind throwing up uh, their YouTube channel. So this is uh, Ray and Zach's YouTube channel. They have, uh, I think, almost daily live streams y'all do, right? Y'all cover the auto market almost daily. Yeah. Um, and then they also you go have... to the live streams. We're doing live streams all the time. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. They're always uh, working hard. Uh, <laughs> father and son duo. Super cool uh, dynamic. Really, really cool uh, thing that they're building here. And they also... Uh, also have a YouTube channel and a website also under Car Edge, which is a resource that I've been using to understand a lot of costs associated to, uh, to cars as well. This is their YouTube channel. And they also have a, a website that really correlates to a lot of this content as well at CarEdge.com. And then you can also find uh, Zach on Twitter as well. I don't know, Ray, do you have a Twitter as well or just Zach? Uh, I, I believe I do have a Twitter um, and I believe my handle is Raz's Jazz, R-A-S-I-S-J-A-Z. So I am at Raz's Jazz. Okay, so we'll, we'll make sure to find your uh, your Twitter and, and plug that as well. Don't waste um, your time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. It's going to be, it's probably the best follow on Twitter. You're just on their planet. Come on now. <laughs> so the, uh, I want to kick off today's conversation with, um, y'all had a live stream today and you covered the days on hand supply was part of the, uh, some of the conversations you were you were having. Uh, and, and I know... This is something that it's been of concern uh, in the auto industry, at least as I've, I've been following. It's ever since really the end of last year, there has seemed to be a, a pretty severe slowdown in the car market. And I'm just curious to hear your thoughts a little bit further on this. What do you think is causing it? Is this a sign of bigger things to come? Just I'm curious to maybe get where your heads are at. We'll start with Ray and Zach and then producer wife, you can pull up that tweet. We'll turn it into a conversation. Well, personally, um, you know, I, I, I just think there's more chip availability. So um, manufacturers have more capability to produce more cars than they have had in say the past 18 to 24 months. And when you couple a, a somewhat slowdown in retail sales, fleet sales are up, but retail sales are down. Um, then you can see why uh, inventories could be building for certain brands. And so that's what I personally think it is. Gotcha. Zach well, also, also pops look at look at the brands that are over on the right side of that chart i don't know many people i mean jeep is you know there's definitely a big following for jeep and alfa romeo is a bit more specialty and things like that but those are typically cars that folks aren't you know jumping up and down trying to get versus look at like toyota lexus kia honda porsche i mean those are all brand subaru as well all brands that people are just trying to get their hands on a lot of those are because they're reliable or maybe the price point's reasonable fuel efficiency versus uh, you know the quality issues that maybe some of the Stellantis products have. So it's a mixture of they have the capability to produce more inventory. We've been covering that story really closely. And also people are a little bit less interested in some of those cars over on the right side of the screen and inventory is definitely starting to build back up. 
Gotcha. Is this something that's typically cyclical? Is this unique to this time? How do you guys think about that? Uh, it It is typically cyclical to a, a certain degree. I mean, in, in the old days, three and a half years ago, um, you know, manufacturers were very pleased to have about three to three and a half million cars in dealership inventories on a monthly basis. Now, obviously, in January and February, those numbers were usually a little bit lower because those are two of the slowest months of the year. And then it would start to build back up again in March and April and, uh, and through the summer. Um, and right now, uh, inventory levels are about 1.8 million, uh, well below where they used to be. Uh, and my suspicion is that what will become the new normal will be monthly inventory levels somewhere between 2 million and 2.4 million. Um, I think, I think manufacturers would feel comfortable with that. And I think dealers would still feel comfortable with inventory levels such as that. They, nobody, neither the manufacturers or the dealers really want to see them go back to three to three and a half million vehicles because that would force dealers to discount and manufacturers <laughs> to incentivize the sales through rebates and other manners. Um, and it would cut into profitability. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying capitalism isn't, isn't a wonderful thing. I don't want to see their profitability go down. So profitability would go down, yeah. Zach, where, where's your head at with that? Yeah, I mean, uh, there was a great article, uh, an opinion piece, I think, that was written in Cox Automotive, last year and uh i think it was like charlie chesbro it was the, it was the author's name but I, don't quote me on that and it was all about how uh, there's a bit of a change in thinking so automakers used to allocate x tens of millions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars for incentives and that was just the cost of doing business and they've now realized that if they can uh whether it was because of chip shortage or supply chain issues or now we see with some automakers like general motors um take you know traditional or take take manufacturing capabilities and put them on pause so that they can artificially hold down supply that is more profitable they do not have to allocate as much towards those incentives so it's definitely we we talk about this constantly on our channels because there's two different approaches to the next decade of of being an automaker one is we are going to try and produce uh, mass market vehicles that people can buy and is not you know uh, uh, an average transaction price on the F series of sixty six thousand dollars, or we're Ford and we're going to produce a truck that we sell a ton of, but the average transaction price is sixty six thousand dollars, and people can't afford it. Like mm -hmm. those are the two divergent strategies. And if you look back in history, this is what happened when uh, Toyota and other Asian automakers came into the United States in the late fifties, early sixties. Keep me honest, pops. They saw an opportunity to build quality inexpensive vehicles and they took huge market share not only here in the united states but globally and so will history repeat itself i i tend to think it will i don't see how unless auto sales annually are going to stagnate or decline which is a possibility but i don't i don't anticipate that i think they will continue to slowly but surely grow someone's going to come up with a cheap vehicle and i don't think it's hyundai kia maybe it's hyundai kia but they have all their own quality issues but someone's going to do it mm-hmm yeah, go ahead, Ray. Well, I was going to say, I, I, I would, I would think that at a certain point, most of the manufacturers are going to recognize that there really is a market for more affordable vehicles for a larger percentage of the American population. Now, having said that, because of the transition to EVs, 
uh, are they really willing to spend their time uh, building ICE vehicles that are suddenly more affordable? Or are they going to let somebody like BYD out of China come into this country and, and offer inexpensive EVs that are less expensive than the ICE vehicles? I don't know the answer to that, um, but I would think that if we see less expensive vehicles meant for mass market, that it'll tend to be electric vehicles and not ICE vehicles as we move forward. Because there's there's a half a trillion dollars that manufacturers have already committed to moving their manufacturing capabilities to EVs. So I, I don't know that we'll see a severe change in in ICE vehicles that are affordable. I, I think what will happen is we will see EVs come into the market that are cheaper than gas vehicles and customers will make their decision based on that. Yeah. It's, it's interesting you mentioned that because one of the, one of the core theses that I have that I talk about quite often on this channel is right around that dynamic where it seems like the market is ripe for just for a player to come in at the lower level at the true affordable, say between the 20 to $35,000 market that is actually compelling and not just like a point A to point B. I call them shit box kind of type vehicles, right? I don't know if you guys would agree. See, I already curse, Ray. So you can drop. See, you can curse. <laughs> I'm going to be good. I'm trying to practice a, a, a better, better skills when I'm on. The- <laughs> but, but I really think I, I, I really want to pick your brains on that uh, a lot on, on this on this uh, sort of discussion. But there's also this you guys discuss sort of there's two divergent strategies and the one is lower volume higher price which also means higher profit which it seems like was the strategy for a lot of automakers especially in the US for the last say 5 years if i look at the global trends for or the US market trends since 2018 there seems to be having a pretty consistent decline year over year for sales and then it's trended towards SUVs and pickup trucks, which we know have high MSRPs and also higher profit margins to the point now that it seems like for the last five years, even though the population in the United States has increased and you've had more people of age able to drive theoretically, that net number of cars sold each year has been less, which theoretically would have made the fleet smaller over time, I think. And that might be why you're seeing this weird pricing action in the used car market now. There's, you know, you guys have talked about this a lot where there's just there seems to be not enough supply for cars that people actually want to buy. Would you say that's a, a proper way of defining what's going on today? It's just less cars have been sold in the last five years, less cars in the fleet, and that's why prices are up. How do you guys think about that? Zach, I'll let you go first. I think you're spot on. I mean, I, and it was exacerbated by, you know, we're, we're in what, year three of a uh, pandemic now? Uh, it, was, it was 2020, right? Was it 2020? Yeah. Holy cow. So, you know, a lot of leases that would come back um, aren't, didn't come back at, during the pandemic. People would extend them, buy them out. And now imagine you've got a lease that you took out in the end of 2019 or the beginning of, of 2020. People are just choosing to purchase that and, and hold on to it because the residual value is still compelling relative to the market value. So I think everything you said, Farzad, plus the fact that people are intentionally not bringing back lease vehicles. And heck, we see actually uh, Tesla does this, Ford's doing it with their EVs. You can't even... You don't even have the option to buy out your lease anymore. So they're trying to play some defense against that to make sure that they can, I think, control a bit of the used car market supply. But yeah, I think you're spot on. And this is something we've talked about more recently in more depth. We think there's like a 
decade long ripple effect here from the what was it that 18 million cars that have been taken new cars taken out of production yeah there's been approximately 15 to 18 million cars that that were originally scheduled to be produced globally over the previous two and a half three years that were not produced which meant well if they weren't produced they couldn't be sold so there were less vehicles available less cars that got sold uh, creating less trade-ins in the future so if if we say just for the united states that out of that 15 to 18 million say 10 million of those vehicles would have been sold in the united states well in one two three five years they would have become pre-owned cars that might have been available in the market well, there's 5 million pre-owned cars that aren't going to be available. How long will it take to make up for that 5 million vehicles that are lacking? Um, will that impact used vehicle values and pricing for the next 5 to 10 years? Personally, um, you know, my opinion has changed on this recently. Personally, I think it will. Um, there's just going to be a shortage of used cars because there was a shortage of new cars that were sold. Um, so I don't know, I don't know how we ever get used cars back to uh, what one would consider reasonable, affordable pricing for the vast majority of people if there's just an absolute shortage of them. And as long as there's a shortage and there's still a demand, as we all know, the prices will just continue to go up because of that. And and for Zog, we got recent data from Cox Automotive. We What was it, Deb? We're at 2.2 million used cars that are in inventory right now. Yes. In pre-pandemic, that was closer to 3 million, yes. if I'm not mistaken. So there's yes. a significant well. shortage. And then there was some new data I saw earlier today that showed the uh, uh, price changes based on the um, average transaction price of the vehicle. It's the cheaper vehicles and the older vehicles that are increasing in price the most. And that's because they fit that price point that people are looking for. And the amount of quality vehicles at that price point or at that age is there's even less supply. So you're seeing the we talked about it in a video that we say cream milk crop and cream of the crap. crap. You know, you get yeah. the cream of the crop <laughs> rising and the cream of the crap just you know, fall onto the floor. I hope that was the title for the video. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was probably, probably something like, yeah, yeah dealers yeah. are falling yeah. knowing, into a Knowing Zach, that, and... would, that wouldn't have been clickbaity enough. So. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, man, titles are an art for YouTube. It's like the hardest thing by far. I don't know if you share that sentiment. It's so hard. The thumbnail and title stuff. We, we, we actually did a video about it one time about how we hate the fact that, that we keep coming yeah. up with all these clickbaity titles. But if we want to get people to look at them, that's what you have to do. It's the only mm -hmm. way it works. Um, and and we, we get a lot of uh, uh, feedback, not positive, about our clickbaity <laughs> title. Um, I do. But, yeah. Well, <laughs> and me, because I'm pretty much associated with you. Uh, so, but I, I don't know how you... If, if you want to get eyeballs and you want to share honest to goodness, good information with people, um, yeah. you know, how do you how do you do that without using a clickbaity title? You, you, yeah. you don't. And so people think it, 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 it destroys our credibility. Not that we have any to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things I feel like it's just, you know, it's it's 
human nature is human nature and the way to grab attention is like you know to really try and you know it's 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 an art that is the most difficult thing to execute i think on youtube and and there's been channels talking about legit bait versus clickbait and delivering and whatever you know it's it's difficult it's got nothing to do with youtube i mean right. it, it goes back to newspapers Okay, you know, headline sure. writers get paid pretty well because they can come up with these these compelling headlines that used to cause people to actually buy newspapers. Okay, um, so it's it's the same principle as a headline writer. Um, it's just in a video source now. Uh, yeah. it, it, you know, you, you scroll through the Internet. If it doesn't have an interesting first few uh, words in the title, you're scrolling right past it. It's it's just human nature. This is unfortunately what it takes to grab people's attention. Yeah, yeah. I, I I agree. I agree. Let me let me ask you a question about this uh, market of affordable vehicles. That so, so the data point you just shared, Zach. I think the one where prices are going up for the lowest price, you know, compelling vehicles is a clear signal that says the market wants them. Right. So when the cheap cars are getting more expensive, it means. We want more cheap cars in, in a way. Yep. And there has been a, a severe shortage of those types of cars for the last five years. Again, as we talked about the transition to SUVs and pickup trucks, which tend to be more and more expensive. Um, walk me through sort of what your thought process is. And, and Ray, you talked about how for the next 10 years, it's going to be a multi-year thing. It's going to take a while to, to sort of unwind. You know, Based on the decades long experience ray you've had and zach obviously you've been right you know you've been right in it for a long time as well what is the likelihood that an automaker would be able to capitalize on that market in say the next two to three years or is it going to take longer than that how do you guys think about timeline i i don't mind taking a, a shot at it first pops um is that okay yeah that's fine so I think two or three years is too short of a time horizon because we've already seen these automakers remove vehicles like the Honda Fit, for example, that got canceled. We've we've seen all of the cheap vehicles get canceled. I think the idea that they could just turn back on production on a dime, these OEMs are not startups. They're not nimble. You know, they move slowly. Will someone do it? We just actually put out a, an article back on CarEdge.com, the cheapest new cars you can buy. And I look at like a Nissan Versa, and you used a phrase earlier to describe potentially the Versa that I will not restate. <laughs> However, I do somewhat agree with, um, you know, are people going to buy $18,000 MSRP Versas? Um, is that going to be the wave of the future? Or is it going to be something that is positioned a little more exciting, fun, maybe has a different powertrain? I don't know. So I, I don't really think these legacy automakers are sitting around in their boardroom thinking, okay, we can make... 25% less gross profit per vehicle sold, but get 25% more market share if we just produce a bunch of cool looking Nissan Versus. Like, I, I doubt that's the conversation because all the actions are great. Let's make the Nissan Aria like a $60,000 SUV and let's make even more gross profit on the few that we sell there. Let's go up market. So I think every boardroom has been filled with people saying, let's go up market. The only exception to that would be Honda, who last year said they were going to get rid of their LX trim level. And then this year, because of the backlash and the demand for it, they came back out and said, we are going to bring back our entry-level trim. So maybe maybe Honda could do it. But then you look at the day's supply chart, they have like the least day's supply. So I don't think anyone's going to move that quickly over the next two or three years. I just, I just don't think they can. Personally, I, I think for, for people that can only afford a, a 
10 to 20, maybe $25,000 vehicle that we're looking for pre-owned ones. And as, as those vehicles become even shorter and shorter in supply, which means the prices will continue to, to escalate on those vehicles, at a certain point, I would suspect that people who were looking at those vehicles might settle for things like a shitbox Versa or a Mitsubishi Mirage, uh, things of that nature. At a certain point, I, I think people have to make a decision. Um, do I just want basic transportation so I can get to and from my job so that I can hopefully make a living to support myself and my family? Or do I, do, do I need to have all the bells and whistles that are going to make that, that $18,000 car a $50,000 car? And my hope would be that at a certain point, a majority of Americans come to the realization that they don't need all the bells and whistles, that they've been sold a bill of goods over the past 40, 50 years from the manufacturers. And, and, and the vast majority of Americans will suddenly say, just give me a car that gets me from, from point A to point B. I don't need all the technology and everything else that you're building in cars today. Uh, will that happen? I, I, I think it, the possibility exists that it can happen because there just aren't enough cheap pre-owned cars for people to be able to buy. Got it. And, and so maybe give me your best estimation just based on, on y'all's experience. A, a typical buyer, the average buyer that comes into a dealership and buys a car today in America, what percentage of them buy strictly because of, say, performance and looks as one. How many of them buy a car based on utility and uh, uh, features that it has? And how many people buy specifically based on uh, affordability and bank for your buck? Like, how would you say those three things uh, break down? Well, uh, I would say that the vast majority of people in this country are what those of us in the industry would always refer to as payment buyers. All they concern themselves with is what the monthly payment's going to be. They don't concern themselves with the price of the car. They don't necessarily concern themselves with the down payment that they're asked to put down. Uh, and they, don't, they definitely don't concern themselves with the length of the loan in order to get that payment to be affordable. Now, having said that, those very payment buyers want to get as much car as they possibly can for that payment that they're looking for. And, you know, when I was actively uh, still in the business and you would do uh, some research with your customer, you know, trying to find out what their budget was, you, you know, people would be looking at thirty-five or $40,000 cars and they go, yeah, but I don't want my monthly payment to be more than $250 a month. Well, those two things don't go together. Okay. <laughs> um, so, so uh, what people felt they could afford and what they wanted were two completely different things. Okay. And, and if you were the first dealer that had to explain it to them, you weren't selling them a car. If you were the fourth or fifth dealer that, that was confirming it for them, you were the likely dealer to sell them the car they didn't really want, but that they could afford. I see. Got it. There was some, there was some really interesting data. I'm trying to remember Dad. Do you remember 
it was the um, average monthly payment breakdown by uh, by age group. Remember that it was Gen Z, millennial, yes. Yes. boomers, etc. I and I wish as I, a percentage of income, as a percentage of income, yes. And this chart, this data, it showed the clearest trend that Gen Z, the youngest generation to purchase automobiles, was spending. It was something ridiculous, up to Close half to of their income. Yeah. Yeah, wow. it was the majority. It was near the majority. We're spending up to fifty percent of their monthly take home on their car payment, and we. And, and so, to your question, like, how, what percentage of people go in looking for just something that gets me from point A to point B, or performance, or the, all the bells and whistles? We had this conversation one day. We had a whole show around it because I, I'm not Gen Z, but I'm close enough. The flex culture is very real. The need to show and and make sure everyone knows that I've got the latest and greatest. And we see that not only with people upgrading to the latest new phone, uh, trying to wear designer clothing, we see it with cars. And that information, when we saw it, it was, what the hell's going on here? People are spending way too much money on these things that they don't quite realize how expensive they are. Part of the thing we're most passionate about, it's not sexy, it's TCO, total cost of ownership. We do a ton right. of research on vehicle, on, on like literally on VIN specific levels to understand what's the depreciation curve, what's the maintenance and repair cost, what's the fuel cost. No one does that. And then we see these young people. I think that's a generation that's really pushes. Young people are just saying, you know what, I'll buy the BMW. Can I afford it? No. Can I get approved? Yes, that fortunately is starting to change a little bit as well. Mm, got it. No, that's extremely helpful. Go ahead, Ray. Oh, well, I was going to say, you know, what allows Generation Z to be able to do that, you know, to, to drive that $60,000 BMW and impress their, their girlfriend is the fact that they're still living in their parents' basement. Okay. <laughs> and, and so, and, and, you know, they could shout they out can, to the parents' basement. Yeah. So they, <laughs> I did so that for can, a while. It is very lucrative. You can save up to 27 that way. Yeah. It's true. But, but, yeah. the, but the point is, you, you know, you can, you can really impress a girl with your BMW until you have to take her home and to your house and you have to go, you got to be a little quiet. I don't want to wake my parents up. Okay. It's, it's it, the, the sad reality is that it, it is, they look at things in a in a manner that is counterproductive to what ultimately, when they get a little older, they'll realize were the important things. And mm. and the important thing wasn't that sixty thousand dollar BMW. The important thing was being able to become financially independent enough to I don't know have your own place to live and and maybe drive a thirty thousand uh, dollar Mazda. Um, but you know, when you, when it was time to take your girlfriend back to your house, it was your house. It was your place. You didn't have to ask her to be quiet because you didn't want to wake your folks up. Gotcha. Different generations. Yeah. I think the one comment that's very interesting though, that you made, Ray, is that the, and, and I can recall this back when I, you know, I would shop for cars, say when I, you know, had less money and I really was more, a little bit more cost conscious was what is my total monthly payment? Like, what is my total monthly payment? And how how much car can I get for that for that value for that for the amount of money that I'm spending, right? So I guess my question is what what is considered affordable? Is it 250 bucks a month? Is it 300 bucks a month? How how do you guys think about that equation when it comes to total monthly payment? Zach, you want to go first, <laughs> or you want it's, me to go first? It's your it's your 10 percent rule, it's, not my 10. It's, it's my 10 percent. <laughs> okay, in my world. Um, what I think makes sense is that you can 
effectively afford to take 10% of your, of your gross monthly income and put that towards your car, okay, and mm -hmm. your car payment. Now, having said that, that to me also has to include your gas insurance and maintenance. So when, when people... When people say, gee, I want my payment to be $250 a month, um, that's great, except most of those people have not, never done any of the research to figure out exactly what, how much you can finance to have a payment of $250 a month. Now, they might have been thinking of $250 a month for 48 months. Um, and, and when they get done at the dealership, they might be at $400 a month for 84 months. Okay, mm -hmm. um, so we can extend the term to get you into a payment that's more for I mean, I went through this literally with my daughter and her <laughs> husband when they said, well, we want to buy a car and we don't want our payment to be more than $250 a month. I said, do you have any idea what that means? They go, no. You know, yeah. it's somebody has to sit down and hold your hand and help you figure out what that budget is. And we have. We have done videos about that on on the Car Edge channel um, to try and and educate people as to how you figure out what you can really afford. And as I say, ten, no more than ten percent. Maybe in today's world with inflation and higher interest rates, no more than fifteen percent of your gross monthly income should be going towards your car payment and your car. That's how right. I look at it. And that's what I used to advise and counsel customers on when I was in the business. Got it. So if, if the average uh, take-home pay per year in the States is like, what, 35 to 40 or something? And so something like that, if you divide that by 12, it's roughly, I don't know, 3000 bucks a month-ish, right? Okay. So then 10% of that would be no more than 300 bucks a month, right? That's and, kind and, of and, the math. And, it, and if you go in today's world where it's a little more difficult than it has been and you want to allocate 15%. So it would be what, uh, $450 a month. Yeah. But that's all in, and right? That's, that's payment, gas, insurance, yes. maintenance. Yes. Got it. It's impossible. Yes. It's, it's truly for that. And, and then if you factor in, if you're that same, I hate to characterize in this way or paint with too broad of a paintbrush, but if you're that same person who's taking home three to $5,000 a month, let's say, and let's say you have poor credit, well, the average APR right now on a used car loan is 14%. That data just came out from Cox yesterday. It's 13.96. I'm rounding it up to 14%. So we did this live on a show, Dad. We went to a car and we had it at 5% for the monthly payment. It was a Sonata. What was it? It was like a $25,000. Yes. And the payment at 5% for 84 months, I think we did, was was $385. And then when, when you put in the average today which is 14 percent, the payment went up to 510 dollars a month jeez okay so on a twenty-five thousand dollar sonata yeah 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 it was yes. it was insane and, and, <laughs> and we have an insurance agency that was something like we set up last year it's really great so we get to yeah. see and we hear all these stories of people who come to us and they're like hey i just got a 10 percent bump in my insurance premiums this year i'm gonna cross shop with you guys we're like hey that's great but so people are getting a bump on their insurance premiums they're paying more uh, interest on the loan if they're buying something new now. The prices are inflated. I mean, it's like the affordability crisis and nightmare is very real. doesn't get talked about enough. 
And I think it will in the near future because we're starting to see on the bank side and on the financial side, some of the ramifications of putting people in expensive cars that they can't actually afford. Auto loan delinquency rates for subprime folks is north of 10%. It's the highest it's been since the global financial crisis. So we're starting to see some of the dominoes fall, which is honestly just sad because it's going to impact those people's credit, the likelihood that they're ever going to be in a position where they can do something that they, you know, are, are deemed credit worthy is, is dinged. Like, it's not a good situation to be in, and it's a true affordability crisis. Gotcha. Yeah. Th thank you guys so much for this information because it's really helping me uh, piece together some of the gut feel research that I've done on this field. And given your expertise and how much time you spend looking at this, the affordable, the way you said affordability crisis is something that seems to be just. It's like, where is it in the news? Nobody's talking about it. They're just talking about record profits for GM. And you guys talk about this, right? GM uh -huh. keep, yeah. has record profits. Ford, look at, you know, they bought a piece of Rivian. They lost money, but at least they're making money on their <laughs> trucks or whatever. Yeah. It's like, cool. But like, it seems like when I talk to regular people, everyone's like, I can't buy a car. Like, I can't buy a car. You know, I was talking to one of my really good friends last night. They have a, a, fa a family of, of three kids. And they're like, we only have one car. We want to get a second car. But it's like, I'm not going to buy a freaking $17,000, whatever, I need something that, that gives me more value for money. And so it seems like all signs point to, and this is sort of like, maybe I'll use this to transition to the EV discussion a little bit, because I think this is where the potential could be for the next five, 10 years. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. If there's an automaker that could come out that has a compelling, affordable car, where the all-in monthly cost is somewhere around that $350 mark per month, it would absolutely dominate the auto industry in the United States. Is that a correct statement or an incorrect statement? How do you guys think? I think it's that? correct. I, okay. I, I think I, you're spot on. Okay. I, I think there's an opportunity there. I think back to, remember when these OEMs came out with car subscriptions and the idea was cheap payment, you don't even own a car, you just subscribe... Well, all of those, for the most part, I think, I think Volvo might be bringing theirs back now, but those shuttered. And I wonder at times, because those came out six, seven, eight years ago, and then they all shuttered over the past two, three years. I wonder if they would work really well right now. I don't even know if people want to buy cars. And I think we see companies like Ford and Tesla who are removing the option of actually buying out leases, pushing us in that direction. You don't own it. You just rent mm. the damn thing. And I would not be surprised. We've talked about this. Another thing we've talked about. There's research that shows the younger generation is less likely to get their driver's license than prior generations. And there's a significant slowdown in Gen Z actually going and getting a driver's license. I think there's a push away from vehicle ownership that's underway. And I think the only way that automakers will be able to counteract that is if they make these vehicles more affordable. So I think you could be right. Could be an OEM comes in $350 price point, but I just don't know if that's a $350 price point on a loan or a lease. It could just be a $350 price point it could be $350 in Uber credits is I actually like one of the things that goes through my mind from time to time. People just mm. want to get from point A to point B. And then the other class of people want to get from point A to point B and look like a rock star. They'll add a zero to the end of their monthly budget to be able to do that. I, I, I personally, I, I would think if somebody could, could come up with a subscription service that was $500 a month and it included the car and included the maintenance and it included your insurance because most subscription services did include the insurance. Um, yep. I, I think the vast majority of people would say, I'm in, Hey, I, it's not mine to own, but it's certainly mine to drive. And, and if they base it on 12 or 15,000 miles a year that you can drive it for 500 hours a month, I all in, I'd be all over that knowing that 
six months from now, I could, I could give it back and get into the next one or a year from now, I could give it back, whatever it is. Um, isn't you Scott somehow... Painter doing that with? Um, didn't he just start up another company? Fair, isn't that the one that he's doing? Where where this is what they like bought a ton of Teslas and now they're renting them out. Essentially, I think I think there are people doing stuff in that space. Though. Yeah, but not not at five hundred dollars a month. No, no. I, oh, no, there's another company, I, I think, Finn, that does that as well. There's but there are people trying to do it. I think I think if a manufacturer came out with a subscription program at five hundred dollars a month all in, now obviously it's not going to be their top of the line car, okay? It's not going to be their biggest car, but if you could come up with with nice, reasonable, decent transportation for five hundred dollars a month, including insurance and maintenance, why wouldn't you do it? If the average payment today on a new car is over $700 a month. And Which is completely include, insane. Yeah, and that doesn't include insurance, <laughs> and it doesn't include maintenance. And if the average payment today on a pre-owned car is well in excess of $500 a month, and that doesn't include maintenance, and that doesn't include insurance, why wouldn't, why wouldn't the vast majority of people say, yeah, I'm in for 500 bucks a month, and I know that's my my total sunk cost on a monthly basis uh, other than the fuel it's going to take to run it. I'm yeah. in. I'm in all day long. Let me walk you through a theoretical. And this, I've been doing a lot of research on this, and I've been trying to sort of uh, piece the, the, the pieces together, you know, for lack of a better word. But yes. um, so... So I, I've been studying Tesla, the company, for a really long time. And one of the uh, products they have coming up uh, after the Cybertruck is this uh, unannounced, but kind of you kind of know what's coming down the pipe. It's this compact car that's rumored to be around $25,000 starting price. Yeah. And so I started doing some math. I'm like, okay, you have a Tesla with a starting price of $25,000. In the United States, it will be able to take advantage of the $7,500 tax credit, which will lower its... Uh, say the net price out the door to 17.5, which uh, theoretically they can pass on through a lease as well. And so if you do, just do some quick math and say a 36 uh, month term, 6%, zero down, it's about 250 bucks a month out the door. And then you have, um, I think Tesla offers a $30 a month plan in Texas where it's unlimited charging at night and it's just a static $30 a month. And then Tesla insurance, where they it's, I think, average, it's like $80 a month in Texas, as an example. So you have $250 plus $30 plus $80, gets you to about $350 a month. Then theoretically, you have less maintenance with an EV versus an ICE car. So maybe another $50 to $100 a month of maintenance um, gets you around that $400-ish uh, price. I just want to get your reaction. What goes through your mind when I describe this type of vehicle? I would love to hear what's going through your mind. The first thing that goes through my mind is that the person that can afford that $25,000 Tesla is not going to qualify for a $7,500 tax rebate. It's Fair just enough. that simple. Okay. <laughs> okay. Those tax rebates, as you know, are meant for wealthy people or, or relatively wealthy people. The and, way they're structured. And, yeah. Yes. The way they're structured. So, so if, if, Tesla. So they can't pass it on on lease, though. They have a they have a thing with the current bill where the manufacturer could take the seventy five hundred dollars yes. and pass it on through the lease. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That that could be done, but on a purchase, it could not. 
because sure. that, that, you know you, you're not going to be able to say to that person that might qualify for 500 out of yeah. the 7500 hours your liability is <laughs> not high it's enough like you're getting yeah. the car yeah, for exactly. 175 you're not yeah. you're getting the car for 245 but under at least scenario yeah. Yeah. yeah yes and, we're talking about scenario. and that's what elise is exactly so so yes i do i think it would work if it was a subscription-based thing i think it would i think i think the way we are conditioned to look at car ownership in this country can be changed 180 degrees from what it is today and today it's people want to own them okay but what you have to realize is if 85 percent of people are financing their vehicle they're not the one owning it the bank owns it so they're accepting a payment. And in this case, in many cases today, 20% of all loans are now 84-month loans. So they're accepting a, a payment and a commitment up to seven full years. If, if we can restructure how we do things and just sell the payment, not the ownership aspect of it, but the payment, you're making, you're going to make a payment, whether you're buying it to own it, or whether you're just using it to, to get from point A to point B. If you can market it that way, then I think people would be all over any type of subscription program that's going to get them a car for somewhere between four and five hundred dollars a month. Why wouldn't you? You just have to you just have to reframe what driving is. Driving why it, it should be easy to reframe it because why do you want to own an expense, a depreciating asset? Why wouldn't yeah. you just want to rent it? Yeah. Zach, where's your head at? Yeah, I I think you're you're headed in the right direction. I think there are a lot of questions around will automakers be able to deliver at price points like you're describing and what are some of the trade-offs to be able to offer vehicles at that price point, whether it's electric or, or internal combustion engine we're seeing already a strong disinterest in doing that because the margins aren't as strong but but if there are innovations at play that can allow it i think that you take that price point you take federal pushes to try and get people to be interested in electric vehicles probably the headwind that you face the most is just mass adoption it's like any type of adoption curve we're still in the early adoption phase in the united states and so the biggest headwind is just getting people excited about electric vehicles and i actually think the the legacy oems pushing more and more into evs like an f-150 lightning that is just going to continue to the dodge ram 1500 rev or, you know they're all just going to push more and more people to be accepting of this and you know, we talk a lot about over on the Car Edge Electric channel, um, people just want to make sure that they have reliable charging. And so if you can also pair it up with that, I don't know why what you described wouldn't work. It 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 will. It absolutely would. Gotcha. How, how do you guys think about sort of this EV transition and the dealership network? Do you think there is a disincentive to sell EVs because of uh, I don't know. You know, there, there is this sort of concept around EVs having uh, it's they're, they're more reliable over time. So I'll use it myself as an example. Uh, I've owned uh, electric vehicles, specifically Teslas for the last seven years and the amount of maintenance I've had to do on them versus my other cars. So I've owned uh, let me just run through my list here. A Jeep Cherokee Loretto, a Pontiac Grand Am. A 1987 Mercedes 260E or 240E, I forget which one it is. It was as old as I was, and it saved my life. I'm eternally thankful for that car. Uh, a Saab 93 and a Mazda 6. 
Uh, and I've owned, uh, in the last seven years, I've owned a couple Model S's and a Model Y. Uh, and the amount of maintenance I've done on those cars has been a fraction of the other ones. So I have some personal data points that say, hey, there is less maintenance involved with electric vehicles, it seems like, in general. Do you think that's a dis disincentive for the dealership network to sell EVs? How do you guys think about that? Because of that service income, right? 100%. I mean, Dad, you taught me service absorption. Explain what that is. Yeah, of course, it's a disincentive for the dealership model. Yeah, yeah. service absorption, so, so you understand what it is, is uh, uh, the industry benchmark is to get to what is known as 70% of service absorption. What that means is that your service department creates enough profit to cover 70% of all your expenses. And in, in really good dealerships, um, service absorption can be as high as 100% and more, which means everything else that is produced within the dealership is just pure profit. Well, if you ask dealerships to make the expenditures that manufacturers are asking to convert to electric vehicles, and then basically what you're saying to the dealership is, not only are you going to make this expense, but you're going to lose service business in the future because these new vehicles you're going to be selling aren't going to need service nearly as often or as, as expensively as an ICE vehicle does. I don't know how those two things go together well. I just don't. Um, you're, you know, service is a huge profit center for a dealership. And if you're it's going to sell a vehicle that's going to require considerably less, well, that means that profit center is going to produce considerably less. So we, I, I yeah. think I think dealers are disincentivized to do it, but they realize that pretty much they have to do it because, well, if you believe everything you see in here, uh, they're going to you know, going to outlaw ice vehicles at a certain point anyway. Um, so if you want to still be in the car business, it's going to be in the electric car business. I just wanted to say in defense of dealerships, which is an odd statement coming out of my mouth, but in defense of dealerships, they are consistent. Anything that would breed uh, transparency or efficiency, they oppose because those are opportunities where they make money. So, for example, it's not just, hey, you want to have electric vehicles that require less maintenance and service. And so we're disinterested in that because it's going to you know, uh, hit our bottom line. They're also disinterested in things. We cover it on our channel. The FTC, the Federal Trade Commission's proposed regulations around uh, truth and advertising, where you actually have to have your advertised price be the real price of the vehicle, or you have to uh, not discriminate against cash and finance buyers. So dealerships lobby and the National Automobile Dealers Association probably despises us. And in reality, they should adore us because we just want the thing to be way more efficient. If they have opportunities to make the process uh, uncomfortable, challenging for the consumer, perpetuate information asymmetry where they know something the consumer, they'll hold on to that because it's incredibly lucrative for the way that the system is currently set up. And it's going to take decades for that to change. But we are seeing those changes. And we're also seeing a huge defensive being put up right now. Different states have already been lobbied by the NADA and local dealers associations to try and make sure that they those dealership groups cannot become agents where they're just doing delivery or to make sure that if the OEM is selling some sort of subscription product, the dealer somehow is entitled to revenue from that. Mm. And what's scary about all this is no one, Ford tried. Ford woke up one day and said, hey, we're, we're splitting our business into two, Ford Model E and Ford Blue. And you know what? If you want to be on Model E, you got to follow all our rules. You can't play any of the games. 
and they really haven't made much progress in pursuing that. They they put some deadlines out there to force dealers to say they were in on it, and then they kicked the can on that. No, no legacy OEM is going to wake up one day and flip the switch. And why is that? Because they make billions of dollars at present, and it's the only thing that's funding their aspirations of going towards electric vehicles and getting rid of the dealership model. So it's going to stick around. It's probably going to be ugly. It's going to be paired with this affordability crisis, and it creates an opportunity for someone to just come in and do it better. At least that's how I think about it. Are you guys concerned about the the auto market for the next three to five years? Because a lot of these sort of things that are starting to come together, you have these the affordability crisis. You got this loan thing happening with the Fed. You have less cars on the road. You have this disincentives potentially with the dealership network. Sort of like what what goes through your mind when you think about the state of the auto industry in 2028? Like what 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 vision what what sort of vision do you have? What comes to mind? Zach, I'll let you tackle that first. Uh, I love it. I get scared too. But the reason I love it is because it's creating an immense need for the type of business we're building, which is consumer advocacy, helping people understand their options, identifying what's reasonable, not getting taken advantage of. So I love it in that regard. But I'm I'm nervous beyond belief. I think that there's a, a bunch of headwinds in the face of the consumer to getting fair treatment, having affordable options. I think the work that a consumer is going to have to do to, to not get screwed throughout this whole process and feel empowered is, is just going up. We see this in the Cox Automotive data. They do an annual car buying study. Capital One does it as well. The satisfaction with buying a car has declined from last year to this year, and that's been consistent. And so the, the, the part of me that thinks about the individual makes me concerned. The part of me that's really proud of what my dad and I do and, and what we're building, I actually think it's a bunch of tailwinds. I think, I think I'm excited for what we're doing because we help people solve those problems, but it's, I wouldn't want to go buy a car right now. I, I mean, why would you? It's a, it's a terrible experience. Yeah. And, and, and five years from now, uh, is the dealership model going to look the same way it looks today? Are we still going to be confronted with inventory shortages? Um, my belief is that when it comes to pre-owned cars, we will, uh, perhaps over the Definitely. next three to five years, um, you know, there'll be, one or two manufacturers out there that understand the, the need for less expensive, more affordable vehicles for the vast majority of people who need them. And maybe there'll be a couple players that step in and really try and, and, and uh, affect the market um, where the vast majority of the manufacturers are, are not looking to do that. Um, it, it, it'll be an interesting time. I, I, I know the conversation Zach and I have had recently is that I always try to to um, look at historical norms and and see how they they fit in with what's going on today. And I've I've recently come to the conclusion that these are just not normal times, at least based on historical norms. And so that at a certain point, you just have to throw those historical norms out the window and look at what the reality of the situation is today. And, and I believe uh, we're entering a, what will be the new normal of shortages and higher prices for uh, the foreseeable future, um, because these are not normal times, and you can't look at those historical norms and expect things to get back to those times. That's just yeah. me. Uncharted territory. It yes. seems like, yeah, I think f from my standpoint, what's interesting for me to sort of track is that, you know, this is something I've, I've really started to pay close attention to in the last, say, really in-depth 
in, into the total auto market in the last year, really since I started this YouTube channel. I kind of had a good understanding of it-ish, but I wasn't super uh, knowledgeable around, say, uh, all the OEMs. You know, like how, how what is Toyota's business model? What is uh, GM's business model? What is Ford's business model? Um, and what I'm noticing uh, in the last few years is that we had this sort of... Uh, like wave of brand new automakers that have come up, you know, that, that are mainly focused around a specific type of drive, drive train, which is the electric. So you have your Rivians, you got your Lucids, you got your BYDs, which, you know, with the electric, you got your Teslas and many others that are, that are starting to come up that are trying to enter the auto market uh, in ways that harken back to the early 1900s or the mid 1900s, where you had all these automakers, you know, I remember Oldsmobile and Pontiac and freaking who knows, there's so many of them, right? <laughs> from, from back in the day. And it seems like it's a renaissance of sorts. Um, and I'm wondering what the landscape's going to look like in the next five to 10 years of what I call the legacy OEMs. So all your brands that have been together, like that are here now, the big guys, and all these new upstarts that are coming through uh, that are starting to ramp up their vehicles and they're trying to make as big of an impact as possible. How do you guys see that playing out in the next, say, decade? Do you think there will be more car brands or less car brands? Is there going to be more consolidation or there's going to be new, brand new automakers? Like, have you guys thought about that at all? Do you, do you have any thoughts around that? Personally, I mean, I, go ahead, Zach, if you want to go first. No, no, I'm curious. Maybe you'll influence my thinking. Okay, well, well personally, what I believe is that a lot of the young players in the industry today, um, Lucid, Rivian, uh, some of the others, those that we think are going to be players, my suspicion is that those aren't the ones that are going to be around, that there will be others that come in that will surprise the hell out of all of us, and whether it be BYD, whoever it is, but they will come in, they will grab market share, they will do things that Rivian and Lucent can't do, which is A, build cars, and they'll actually <laughs> deliver the damn things in a, in a somewhat profitable manner. Uh, you know, you, you, can't, you, you, you can't sell cars and lose, I don't know, a million and a half dollars per car that you're selling and, and, yeah. and, and expect to be a player in the industry. So I, I think that there will be legacy brands that will hang on, Okay, but that they probably won't be nearly as successful as they were hoping they would be. And there will be a couple of upstarts that we haven't even seen in the U.S. market yet that will grab significant share of, of the market and, and just surprise the hell out of people. Um, and I don't think Lucid or Rivian is either one of those. I don't, I don't think... I. As much as they'd like to believe they're here for the long term, I don't think either one of them is. Tesla is, and Tesla will be a leader of, yeah. of the automotive revolution. But, you know, Lordstown, Rivian, Lucid, that's just, you know, that, that's money that you could just kiss goodbye. And, and <laughs> I, it just, I Not mean, financial really, advice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, I mean, how long can they sustain themselves and how long will, will investors be willing to keep giving them money with the hope that they're actually going to turn into something someday? Um, I, I, I think there's players out there that we haven't haven't seen in the U.S. market yet that will make significant inroads. And and so they're names that we haven't even talked about yet. 
I'm kind of in alignment with you, Pops. I think I think consolidation definitely. Uh, in capitalism, consolidation always wins because it leads to efficiencies, bigger PLs. You can cut staff, operating expenses good. Like it's just how capitalism works. So you I think need we that see consolidation. Buzzword, Jack, synergy it leads to <laughs> synergies. Synergy, yeah, lots of yeah. synergies. Um, <laughs> so I definitely see that, and I wouldn't be surprised if the brands that you just mentioned, Pops, they end up getting. Um, I would not be surprised if you see legacy OEMs who can pitch investors that they have the infrastructure to produce at scale and they don't have maybe some of the exciting vehicles or the powertrain technology, actually the consolidation being the acquisition of some of these companies when they start to struggle, which I think will be over the next 12 to 18 months. So no, like struggle even more pops. Uh, And so I could see a world where legacy OEMs are better at raising capital, better at telling the story, have more... This definitely doesn't apply to Ford, though, because holy cow, they have quality control issues and production issues out the wazoo. But maybe it's like a Hyundai and a Kia or a Hyundai group that says, you know what? We're already kicking butt. We can kick even more butt if we just acquire X. X is going to get us here. We do it. So I wouldn't be surprised if you see that type of consolidation. And almost like we see with some of the brands, I'm thinking of um, uh, uh, Volkswagen with Scout. They're bringing back their Scout brand. I wouldn't be surprised if you see these legacy OEMs now just create an entire lineup that's tied to i'm not saying that hyundai's gonna buy rivian but you know i wouldn't be surprised if it's just part of a group like that i think that ends up being what makes the most sense gotcha very helpful yeah thank you so much we're uh, approaching an hour here and, and i want to make sure i'm respectful of your time uh any any last words ray or zach uh that you want to share that within the hit on i saw you i uh, shared a video in the private chat Zach. did you want us to pull that up Oh, I just wanted to mention that's the affordability video. We've done many of them, but my dad explains the 10% rule. So for those of you who are interested, how much car can I afford? It is a worthy video to go watch. Um, My dad explains everything. So please, please go take a peek at that. Awesome. You can find it at Car Edge uh, YouTube channel. Ray, any any sort of last thoughts on, on things? Whoa, we have? for I, I Zod, go... it said 574 people were watching. I didn't realize. Wow. Oh, I'm yeah. I'm kind of nervous now. Yeah, seven seven thirty eight <laughs> right now. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we we got a few a few a few a few people here watching for sure. I think what I'm trying to do is I'm really trying to fully understand. You know, I am somebody who's going to be naturally biased with one specific car company because I've been invested in it for so long. I've worked at the company. You know, I'm, I'm very passionate about it. But I I really have a huge interest in the auto market broadly because it's just some. I love cars. I love cars. And I want every car maker. Uh, thank you, DRK, a longtime listener of the chat. Um, I just love talking to knowledgeable, smart people. And I consider you guys to be knowledgeable, smart people. And so it's, yeah. it's my absolute pleasure to bring you guys on and, and talk to you. That, that was your first mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Assuming that we were knowledgeable, smart people. <laughs> Maybe we're really dumb, but we have a great way of communicating. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're both very smart and have a great way of communicating. Seriously. Yeah. yeah I really appreciate you guys. Just how just, yeah. Thank you so much for how kind you've been for, with your time. I, I love this this talk. And you guys are welcome anytime. I would love to continue picking your brain. There's so much to talk about in this space, I feel like. Really appreciate you guys. Well, Seriously. thank you for having us. I don't know about my son, but I had a great time. And I, <laughs> and I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. And I, I'm assuming that Zach did as well. Yeah, thank you. We really appreciate it. Thank you, thank you, thank you.
of course, of course. Yeah, make sure you go check these guys out uh, at Ray and Zach. Uh, you can find them on their YouTube channel. We have also on Courage. You can find them, Courage.com. You can find them on, on Twitter. Uh, Zach at, at Shefska, I believe, is your handle. And then Ray, I forget yours. And, but we'll have at it in the Raz's Jazz. At Raz's Jazz, yes. We'll make sure to include that. We'll yeah. make sure to include that. Yeah, all right, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all so much. Uh, we'll see you in the next one. We'll do a little quick outro here, and then we'll be back in the backstage. Uh, thank you guys very much. Mwah. Love you guys. Thank you, comments. Thank you. Thank you, uh, mods. Thank you, producer wife. Great job. And we'll see you guys in the next one. Take it easy, everybody. Bye-bye.